Thanks for listening to the High Street Young Adults Podcast. For more information and how to get connected, check out highstreet.org slash youngadults. Thank you guys, thank you. As Logan said, tonight I'm gonna be talking to you guys about peace. So I figured the first place to start we'd just talk to you about the Dallas Cowboys. Is anybody else in here a Dallas Cowboys fan? A couple, okay, that's more than I thought to be honest. Sorry, Emma. But anyways, so the reason I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan, I'm from St. Louis, but my dad, he became a Cowboys fan in about the 80s. So if you know anything about the Cowboys, 80s and 90s, they won about five Super Bowls. Since then, they've won about zero. Um, but a, a few of the jaw-dropping stats for them in the past 10 years, I'll give them to you. So last 10 years, four winning seasons, they've won two playoff games, and they've never made it past the divisional round. They are consistently inconsistent. But hey, Dak Prescott just signed a $160 million contract. Um, I think it's way overpriced, but we'll see. Anyways, if, if my peace and my satisfaction was contingent upon the performance of the Dallas Cowboys, I would be all over the place. Like, they are consistently inconsistent, as I said. Yet, the way that the world defines peace is not too different, and the solution that they offer for it is not too different than me finding it in the Dallas Cowboys. So what exactly does the world say about peace? Well, if you, if you Google it on Google, what you'll find is a few things. A couple that I pulled were, number one, Freedom from disturbance, tranquility. I don't know what that word means. But number two, a state or period in which there's no war or a war has ended. And then another definition that I found is peace is a stress-free state of security and calmness that comes when there's no fighting or war, everything coexisting in perfect harmony and freedom. So what you gather from these definitions is that peace is both subjective, so it varies person to person, and it's, it's circumstantial, so it's dependent upon our circumstances. The way, that you define pay, the way that you define peace may be different than the way that I define peace, and so forth. And it makes sense that if it's subjective and circumstantial, dependent on our circumstances again, that the world will give us solutions, such as things titled like, 20 steps to finding your inner peace, or how to be happy in 14 little steps. And that last one is an actual article that I found by the expert on peace herself, Oprah Winfrey, I'm sorry if any of you are diehard Oprah fans, but anyways, in this article, a couple of things that I like to pick out are, first step, bring nature into your home. Some of you plant girls out there are like, yes, yes. Number two, make a bucket list, okay. Three, listen to music to drown out negative thoughts. Four, my personal favorite, fake it till you make it. So what you gather from this is that obtaining peace is a gradual process, that it comes over time, and that it's something that you work for, frankly. Or maybe you you have a different mindset. Maybe it's, if I just had this mindset, if I I just had this job, or if if I just had that girl, if I just lived in that house or that neighborhood, if I could just get into this school, Maybe you're in college and you're like, man, if I could just drink a little bit more, if I could just do this drug, if I just get that girl, that guy, then I would finally be happy. I would finally have peace. And I had a very similar mindset to that when I came to college. But tonight, I'm not going to give you 17 steps to find your inner peace. 
I'm not gonna tell you how to cultivate happiness in the hustle and bustle of everyday life. I'm going to tell you the one thing to be granted peace. The only way that you'll ever have peace in this life and the life to come. So what does God's word have to say about this peace? The passage that we're gonna look at today comes from John 16, 31 through 33. And a little bit of the context behind this is this is the last message that Jesus delivers to his disciples as a group in the Gospel of John. And so Jesus is preparing his disciples for his, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his subsequent ascension into heaven. And so Jesus has been with his disciples for the past three years, day and night, eating and drinking, sleeping. He's been teaching them time and time again. They've been with him every single day. And they don't know what to do at this point. They have no idea what to do. They haven't been with, apart from him for three years and now he's telling them that he's gonna leave. Not only that, he's gonna die. And so they're distraught and they're besides themselves. And so what we see in this message is Jesus' message of comfort to his disciples, his message of lasting peace to them. So beginning in verse 31, Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So the Greek word here for peace is pronounced arena. And how this is defined in the biblical context is like this. The tranquil state of a soul assured of its salvation through Christ. And so fearing nothing from God and content with its earthly lot of whatsoever sort that is. So if you're not fluent in Christianese, what salvation means is simply it's the deliverance or the redemption from sin and its consequences. I'll read that one more time. The tranquil state of a soul assured of its salvation through Christ and so fearing nothing from God and content with its earthly lot of whatsoever sort that is. So the, what we gather from this definition, from the way that the Bible defines peace, is that this peace is objective. You either have it or you don't. You either have a relationship with Jesus or you do not. You're either saved or you're not. Yet what we also see in this verse is Jesus' guarantee of hardship. He says in the world you have tribulation. And so from these two things we gather that Jesus offers us, offers us peace, but he promises us tribulation. He promises us hardships. And I don't think that we had to read this verse for you to understand that there are hard things in this world. That there are tough things that you go through in life. But Jesus' words of comfort are to take heart because he has overcome the world. And if you know anything about the, the point at which we're in the gospel story here, that's absurd for him to say. That is absolutely crazy. He's, he's in the process of being sold by one of his disciples, Judas. He, he's going to be delivered over to the Romans and the Pharisees where they're going to beat him, they're going to mock him, they're going to place a crown of thorns on him, he's been whipped, He's bleeding profusely and eventually he's gonna be nailed to a cross upon which he bears the fullness of the wrath of God on behalf of the sins of his people. Yet, in him, there is peace. It tells us in chapter 18 that Jesus knew what was going to happen. He knew what the outcome of all this was gonna be. He knew that sin and death would be defeated once and for all. He knew that he'd be raised from the dead. He knew. Now, I grew up in a Christian household, potentially like many of you. My parents are Christians, and I'm so thankful for that. I was taken to church every Sunday. I was involved in youth groups. I went on retreats. You name it, I was probably at it. 
And as a result of that, I knew what the true gospel was. I understood that the only way to have a relationship with Jesus, the only way to heaven, was through repentance and placing my trust in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. It wasn't about how good I was. It wasn't about the works that I did. It wasn't about how I acted or what I said. It was simply about those two things, repentance and trust. Yet, I didn't believe my parents. I didn't believe what the people had to say at church. I thought my parents were entirely wrong about religion and Christianity. I I didn't believe Jesus was who he said he was. And as a result of that, I set out to live my own life. I was gonna find my own happiness. I was gonna find my own peace. I was gonna find my own satisfaction all on my own, my way. And so essentially what I did was I sought to prove my parents wrong. I sought to prove the church wrong. And all these Christians who said that Jesus was the way to abundant life. And you know, the thing is, is I did that for a long time. I did that for a very long time. For 19 years of my life and I came to college like that. I was, I was finding my peace in all the wrong things. In, in alcohol, parties, girls, whatever it is, you name it. And, but at the same time, as I was so bent on proving my parents wrong through that, through my success and through all these things that I could have a happy life, I went to bed every single night knowing that if my parents were right and I was wrong, that I would spend all of eternity in hell as a result of my sin if I did not wake up the next morning. And that terrified me. I wasn't peaceful, I was restless every single night, but I loved my sin far too much to ever admit that I was wrong, to ever tell anybody that. I didn't read my Bible, I didn't pay attention in church, didn't listen to my parents, didn't listen to the Christian over here, over there. I was doing what I wanted to do and I loved that. And like I said, I did that for 19 years. Romans 1, 21 through 23 says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Claiming to be wise, I became a fool. This mindset that I had that if I just could just get one more thing, if, if I just had this, if I just had that girl, if I, if I was just had this status in my fraternity, then I would finally be happy. I would finally have peace. And the reality is that some of us realize this when we're five years old, that this mindset is foolish. Some of us realize this when we're 50. And some of us never do. And my prayer is that that would not be the case for anybody in this room. And so, when I went to college, my dad wrote me a letter. And my dad, when I was born, he wasn't a believer. He didn't know Jesus. He didn't have a relationship with Christ. And as a result of that, he knew far too well of the fleeting desires that this world has to offer. But he also knew the surpassing joy of knowing Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And so he imparted to me his wisdom. In the final lines of the letter, he wrote this to me. But if nothing else you gather from this letter is the fact that there's only one thing that will satisfy, that's knowing God as Lord and Savior, treasuring him above everything, you see, If you put your faith for happiness or peace in something you can lose, you'll be crushed when you lose it. Whether it's a nice house, a good marriage, a job or money, you can in an instant lose that. When you do, 
you get angry. You think you've been cheated and that life is totally unfair. But my prayer for you every day will be to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you as well. First, I wanna say thank you to my dad for writing me this letter and being the father that he was. But I wasn't a believer when he wrote this to me. But by the grace of God, when I went to college, I met a Christian in my fraternity. He actually ended up being my big brother. And he befriended me and started a relationship with me. He asked me questions about my family, about where I found my value, about what I wanted to do when I, when I grew up, about what I wanted to do when I left college and all these things, and he cared about me. He really wanted to know who I was. He wasn't asking the questions that some of my other fraternity brothers were asking me. And so he also began to process through the gospel with me. He shared this verse with me, it's Romans 6.23, and he explained to me how the wages of sin is death, which was something that I knew far too well every night before I went to bed. And the latter half of that verse is that the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And that was something I believed far too little. And in spite of my consistent rejection of Thomas, he continued to love me. And he continued to share the gospel with me and he continued to hang out and process through it with me. And over a period of seven months, I just realized that the things that I was pursuing and placing and trying to find my satisfaction and peace in, they were foolish. And, and so I surrendered. I, I repented for my sin and I placed my trust in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And the night that that occurred, that I was saved, I slept with peace for the first time in my life, knowing that I was in right standing with God. Knowing that if I didn't wake up in the morning, I would be with God for all of eternity in his presence, worshiping him. In Jesus, I had peace. Now, some of you in this room are as I was three years ago, which as Jesus says in Matthew 9, 36, is harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Because frankly, you're looking for peace and joy in all of the wrong places. You are dead in your sin as it says in Ephesians 2. And if that's the case, then I say to you, repent and believe the good news. The good news is that Jesus was a man who lived on this earth 2,000 years ago. And at the same time, he was full of God. And as a result of that, he lived a perfect life, fulfilling the standard of God that you and I cannot fulfill, which is perfection. And as a result of that, he was sent to a cross where he was nailed, where he was beaten, and again, where he, where he paid the penalty for his people's sins. But he didn't stay dead. He rose again three days later, meaning that God accepted his sacrifice on his people's behalf. And so that whoever repents from their sin and places your trust in him as your Lord and Savior will have eternal life, can have a relationship with Jesus, and can have peace that is objective, that no one can take away from you. Yet, the world is doing every single thing it can to distract you from this message. It's doing everything it can to distract you from the fact that true peace is found in Jesus. It's like, over, over here we got our 20 steps. Just do this next step, and just, just make your bucket list and you'll feel a little bit better, but you just gotta do a couple more and then you'll finally be there, but come back, research another article when you don't feel it and that's how it works. And some, some of you I think, you're like, I, I'm fine, I'm fine how I am. I know I'm not a believer, I don't need Jesus. You're like I was, you're like Jesus is just gonna constrain me. But what happens when your spouse gets sick one day? 
What happens when you lose a child? What happens when you get sick? What happens when your circumstances aren't so good? Are we gonna go to, to Oprah and, and see what the 14 steps to happiness are? Or are we gonna trust in Jesus, who does not change, who doesn't care who you are? He, does, he doesn't change. And I pray that you place your trust in him. And maybe there are some of you in here who are Christians, that you don't feel like you have peace. Maybe you feel beaten and battered down by your circumstances. And that could be because maybe there's some unrepentant and unconfessed sin in your life. If that's the case, then I say to you James 5, 16, which says, therefore confess your sins to one that may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great powers is working. Confession leads to freedom. But maybe that's not the case. Maybe there isn't any sin in your life. Maybe it's just the circumstances, like I said, are so hard. Maybe you are experiencing a sick, sick loved one. Maybe, maybe you've, you've lost someone in this pandemic. Maybe, maybe just your circumstances at school or whatever it is just are not going well. But, but, but what I wanna tell you is that there's not one more thing that you need. There's not one more step that you have to take. You have peace with God in the form of the Holy Spirit that lives within you. You are guaranteed that and no one can take that away. No one can take that away. Trust in that and walk in it. And there's a story in Luke 10 of Mary and Martha. They're two sisters and they're in the presence of Jesus, both of them. Martha, she, 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 it says that, the scripture says that she's distracted with much serving and she's coming up to Jesus. Jesus, why are you not upset with Mary? She, she's not helping me with anything here. And Jesus is like, Martha, Martha, Martha. He says, you're distracted with much serving. While Mary, she has chosen the good portion. The good portion is Jesus. They're both in the presence of, of the Son of God, both of them. Yet one of them is walking in this peace that they have. And so some of us, we could just be distracted by our circumstances, not understanding that we have peace with God. Isaiah 26.3 says, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Now, as we close here tonight, I wanna finish by telling you one more story of someone who's had a very influential impact on my life and my walk with God. And that person is my grandmother. I call her Grammy, but uh, when, when we recently lost my grandfather this past November, and uh, when my grandfather met her, she, she was a single mother, she was far from God, she didn't know Jesus, and she lacked peace. But by the grace of God, they got married. My grandmother came to know the Lord and she faithfully served by my grandfather's side for the next 56 years. And so when, when I had the pleasure of speaking at his funeral, it, it, it was so awesome. But my grandma, the only time that she cried was when she saw me, was when I walked up to her, said, hey Grammy. How you doing? And see, when I told my grandmother for the first time that I, that I had entered into a relationship with Jesus, she explained to me how, how she'd been praying for me since I was a little boy. She says, Carter, I'd always been praying for you. And so when she sees the boy that she's prayed for for the past 20 years walking in, 
It makes sense. But what she told me, she told me this. She, she says, Carter, we call, my, we call my grandfather Papa. She says, Papa is now in the cloud of witnesses, which is a reference to Hebrews 12.1. And then she explained as she was brushing her hair that morning, she's like, God is my husband. She's like, he's my husband now. I was like, what are you talking about? Um, but it wasn't until a couple months later that as I was reading in Isaiah, it says in this little obscure verse, Isaiah 54, five, for your God, for your maker is your husband. My grandmother knew her Bible. Her foundation was firmly set in the word of God. And so as I went to sit down and as we watched the proceedings of the funeral, all these people are coming up to my grandmother to console her. She's not shedding a tear. All these people are coming up to her weeping and she's consoling them. And I'm watching her and I'm like, how is this possible? She was married to this man for 56 years. They raised three kids together, serving the Lord all the while. And she's like a rock. And it made no sense. It didn't make any sense at all, unless you understand the words of Jesus. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Let's pray.